grateful for a wonderful worship team that can lead us the way they do. Just grateful. Let's ask the Lord to open our hearts and minds as we receive His Word this morning. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We pray now that You would speak through Your servant. Spirit, come and open our hearts, open our minds, help us to receive, to be challenged and changed, but also to find rest in our only hope, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. I have had the distinct honor of praying at wedding receptions where almost nobody cared that I was praying. And no one was listening. Maybe the bride and groom, I'm not sure. Probably not, but... I mean, I would just hear them keep talking and, and laughing and, and getting louder. The louder I tried to get to kind of let them, hey, I'm, I'm praying, they asked me to do this. The louder they would get, they just didn't seem to care. A couple weeks ago, during Wednesday night Bible study, uh, one small group was meeting in Snyder Main Hall while the other groups were in the, the rooms around it. And uh, the group in the main hall was praying while the other groups let out. And so there was a lot of talking and it was really hard to concentrate while we were trying to pray. Have you ever tried to have a conversation at a wedding reception? Maybe especially an Armenian wedding reception? I usually just kind of give up and I just kind of watch people and smile and then I leave the hall to have a conversation. That's kind of the way it is. All right, so why so much about noise pollution this morning? Um, what's the point? Well, we're going to come back to this, but it has to do with what Jesus saw and heard when He went to the temple that last week of His life. It's Palm Sunday and each year we remember the beginning of Holy Week. That's where we are. As Jesus entered into Jerusalem riding in on a donkey, people around Him crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Putting branches on the ground, even their own garments and clothes, so the donkey would cross over. But more than that, the King would cross over and enter into His city, Jerusalem as he's actually heading to the cross. And every Palm Sunday we speak of the crowds and what they thought of Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they sure seem to get something about this Jesus. They seem to think that he's Messiah. They would cry out, Son of David. It's Pretty cool. But as I was working my way through some of these passages this year in preparation for Palm Sunday, my attention was drawn to something different. Something else that was interesting about Palm Sunday. You see, in Matthew's account of that day, the triumphal entry, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and He goes to the temple and He immediately starts cleansing the temple. Seems like it happens on that very day. He goes in right to the temple and does His work. But in Mark's account, interestingly, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, goes, yes, directly to the temple, and we're told that he looks around at everything. That's actually the language there from Mark. Looks around at everything. And then he leaves for the night. It was late. That's from Mark. At first, I was a little bit uncomfortable with the fact that these two accounts differed. 
But rereading Mark helped me to see what Matthew was doing. Both accounts really are saying the same thing. Matthew is more focused thematically rather than chronologically. He wants to make a point. Both are saying the focus of Jesus was on the temple. Mark, I think, was more chronologically precise. He has Jesus come back the next morning and yes, go right to the temple and drive out the buyers and the sellers. We'll come to that. But Matthew didn't want us to miss the point of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and what was on his mind. And so he ties these two scenes together. Jesus came and he went right to work on the center of Jewish religious life, the temple. You see, beloved, often we get so caught up in what the crowds are doing, what they're saying about Jesus on the first Palm Sunday, that we miss what Christ was doing, where His mind and heart were. And that's where I want to focus this morning. For those who've been in church for a while, and maybe you've come to many Palm Sunday services, we know that the triumphal entry is about Jesus entering as King into Jerusalem, fulfilling a prophecy from hundreds of years prior in Zechariah 9, that the King is entering into Zion on the foal of a donkey. A humble King. A King who brings peace, not war. He doesn't come in on a war horse. He comes in on a donkey. And that is all true and it's good. But in order to bring peace, what was this king's focus? What was Jesus thinking about when He entered into Jerusalem for His final week of earthly ministry? How is it that He was going to bring peace? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17, Matthew 21. If you reach under the chair in front of you around the sanctuary, you can grab a Bible. It's page 826, Matthew 21. I encourage you to take those Bibles out, open them up, and keep them open so we can work through the text together. Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. Here is God's Word. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple, and He healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise and leaving them. He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Amen? May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Holy Word. There are three short, distinct, identifiable 
sections in this brief paragraph here in Matthew. We find the first one in verses 12 and 13. You can take a look at it there. Then also turn your bulletin on the back where there are some notes and you can fill in. Here's our first point. The temple leaders meet the temple himself in verses 12 and 13. They meet the temple himself. Let's set the scene for a moment. Jesus heads right into the temple. We are told that he looks around and then he has this need to turn tables over and, and kick people out. But what is it that he saw when he got there? What is it that causes him to return and do this work of cleansing in the temple? Uh, first, let's get a picture of the temple. You have to understand that Herod had done some work on the second temple. And what Herod had done is maybe do more than double the size of the temple. It was massive from the accounts that we read. The entire temple precinct, temple mount that Herod had built would have covered an area of approximately 35 football fields. I can't even imagine that, to be honest. I was trying to do some calculations. Not very good at math. But... I think it was about nine or ten times the size of not this building, but the entire property of this church. Imagine. Imagine. It was the pride of the Jewish people. It was the center of life and identity for them. And what we can tell from the passage is that Jesus enters in from a part of the, 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 the uh, gate that leads him into what we would call the court of the Gentiles. It was the only part of the temple precinct where non-Jews were allowed to be in. There were clear signs elsewhere that would not allow Gentiles any further. Actually, a wall as well that would keep them out. In fact, I was recently reading that on these signs were written both in Greek and in Latin to make sure everyone understood. And it said something like, keep out to the Gentiles or die. That's not even a joke. It's true. There were other limitations too. By the way, there was a court for the women. They couldn't go further than that. And of course, there were parts that only the priest can go into. And of course, the final part that only the high priest once a year for a short while. In this court of Gentiles, it seems at recent times, temple markets had been set up in the court of the Gentiles. And we've got to understand why they had set up some markets. There was a need for markets, of course, not necessarily in the temple there, but what was the need for markets that were just outside the temple for many, many years? Well, pilgrims would be coming for worship, right? They'd be coming from all over the known world to come to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices and their offerings, but they needed to bring with them animals that would pass inspection. Not every animal was worthy of being sacrificed as worship. And imagine if you're traveling a long distance and you're supposed to have an unblemished lamb or an unblemished dove or whatever other animal you were to use, imagine the risk that you were taking if you tried to travel with those animals and who knows what's going to happen to them on the way. And so it was nice to have somewhere you can go and buy an animal that would have been appropriate and proper for the worship. It was supposed to be without blemish. Imagine you show up and it doesn't pass the priest's inspection. So instead, what if you knew that there were, for a lack of a better term, pre-qualified lambs or pre-qualified doves that you could buy right there around the temple? It's like going to the car dealer to work on your car instead of an independent mechanic. You assume they're going to use the manufacturer's parts, right? 
might be more expensive, but it's worth it. Well, how much more when you're talking about a sacrificial offering? There's also something else in the scene. Money changers. This is interesting. It was required at the time that you pay the temple tax using Tyrian coins. That is, coins from Tyre. I was trying to understand why. Some people said that they suggested it was because on other coins from other lands, from other places, there were images of gods and goddesses, and so those would be blasphemous. But then I read that even on Tyrian coins, there would have been images of gods. So what was it? Others argued that Tyre was known as a trading nation. Its coins were always well-measured, accurate with regard to the amount of silver or gold used. And so perhaps it was just a better standard coin. I think that's got merit. Regardless, as many of you have probably traveled to foreign lands, you know how important it is to have a place where you can exchange currency. It's often also those very places that are the most corrupt know how to make the most for their money. There's something more here as we're looking at this text. Remember earlier, I was talking about all the noise pollution that I've experienced at weddings. Can you imagine how loud it would have been there where people are buying and selling and exchanging? Many people give an account that in Jerusalem, the city, normally you'd have seventy to 100,000 people, but during the time of Passover, which this would have been, it would have swollen to about a million or more people. Imagine how loud. One person compared it to a busy bazaar. This is what Jesus saw and heard. He gets in there. It's kind of like, not that I've ever done this, but walking into a casino, um, hearing all the games and things going. I remember speaking at an event where there was a guest sitting right up front. One guest who literally would not stop talking as I was supposed to be giving a speech. I couldn't even hear myself think. That was one person. Imagine all the noise that he is hearing as he goes in there. What was the temple for? Why have a court for the Gentiles? The temple, beloved, was a place of worship. It was supposed to be a place of prayer. It was a place where you would come into the presence of a holy God, the God of the universe. In fact, the temple, as we discussed last week in a different context, was to be symbolic of the very presence of God on earth. More than that, it was a place of atonement where God and man would meet, where, where God and man would be reconciled through the sacrificial offerings that were being made to cover the sin that separates us from a holy God. Instead, it seemed that the temple had become a place of business where those who should have been shepherds caring for the people were profiting at their expense. They're the ones who brought it into the temple courts. They really didn't seem to care about their souls or their relationship with God, just their bottom line. This is what Jesus saw. Jesus saw all of this. He heard all this. And here is what Jesus knows about the temple. Jesus Himself is the true temple. He is the one that that entire system was supposed to be pointing to. 
And so he comes in and he sees this mess, for lack of a better term, and he wants to cleanse it and he will judge it and he wants to end the corruption, but also he wants to reveal that the physical temple was always meant to point to him. And so he gets to work. And he drives out the sellers and the buyers. He overturns tables. Imagine the scene that Jesus is making. It's not so much that there shouldn't be buying or selling of things at all, but really the issue is where they are doing the buying and the selling. Inside the temple courts. There shouldn't be the kind of profiteering that was likely taking place. And Jesus comes there and he refers to two Old Testament passages. Take a look at your text there, verses 12 and 13. And look at the two passages that Jesus alludes to or refers to. Helps us understand his concern. First he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He takes this directly from Isaiah 56. The passage actually goes on to say, a house of prayer for all nations. For all people. For Gentiles too. It's a passage that foreigners and, and eunuchs, it's about foreigners and eunuchs that were once kept out, that were once not allowed to come to the, the mountain of the Lord to worship, are now coming to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple, to worship and sacrifice. The temple is to be a place of worship for all. It's to be a place where even the marginalized come and find hope and peace. That was what the prophecy was about. But Jesus doesn't end there. He adds, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. He's talking to the temple leaders, beloved. That language of den of robbers is interesting. It's actually alluding to another prophetic text from Jeremiah chapter 7. In that passage, God's people had been living in godless ways. They were oppressing foreigners. They were not caring for the widows and the orphans. They were even worshiping the false gods of the nations. But then, they would go into the temple and perform ritual sacrifices and worship, giving no second thought to what they were doing. It's like lying and cheating and swingling businessmen who go to church and light a candle every week. As though that candle lighting or that sacrifice or that worship is means anything at all the prophet jeremiah reports the word of god to them god asks an indicting question to them in jeremiah has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes that could be translated cave of bandits what, what he's talking about is a place where thieves and other Criminals would go to gather and hatch their plans, count their loot, figure out another way to do destructive things. It's a hideout, so to speak. And he's saying, look, is the temple, has it become a hideout for you? Do you think that just because you're a priest, just because you're connected to the temple, just because you go to church, do you think that's going to save you from the judgment of God? Jeremiah was calling out their hypocrisy. They're going through the motions of worship, but their, their daily lives, well, it was as though they didn't really believe God existed at all. And look at what Jesus is doing. Je Jesus is taking that language and He's applying it to the temple leadership here. He's calling them out. Some New Testament scholars said that temple leaders were like the mafia. 
the kind of control they extended over the temple and the funds and the taxes. I mean, just to have a picture in my mind of Marlon Brando or Al Pacino. I don't know. But this is supposed to be God's house, not the Godfather's. Jesus comes into the temple precinct and He makes a scene, a big scene. And from what we can tell, there had to be at least some interruption in this, the services that were going on there. Like the fig tree that withers, the temple leadership has not fulfilled its role and the temple itself is not pointing beyond itself to something greater in that state. There's corruption which prevents the people from even understanding what it was meant to point to. That God Himself reaches out to His people to make a way for them to come to Him. The temple is is the way divine. It's the bridge. It's, It's the way for atonement. Instead, it was a way for leaders to profit. To have control, increase their power and their comfort. But the real temple had come. And though He is a humble King who rode in on a donkey, He is a King who loves His people and He will not stand for evil leaders blocking the way. He is King. He's Savior. He's Judge. And He is God come near to fallen humans. This leads in Matthew's account to a short but extremely important next scene. Look at it in verse 14. Here's our second point. Jesus reveals the temple's true purpose. Compare what Jesus is doing to what the temple leaders are doing in this moment. Set side by side with the corruption of the temple, this powerful moment, this contrast, really opens up the heart of God and the intention of Christ's coming. The very people that likely were most oppressed by the actions of the temple leaders The ones treated with disdain instead of mercy, distance instead of kindness, the blind and the lame, Jesus heals. Do you see that there? Look at the verse carefully. It's a simple statement. They come to Him in the temple and He heals them. It's all we're told. It's all we're told, but there is something powerful happening in that moment you have to understand something the lame and the blind were specifically kept out of certain parts of the temple in fact it was part of the law of god to maintain the holiness of the temple that no lame person or blind person or other person with that kind of defect could ever serve as a priest they were considered unclean One author mentioned that it may be the mats and the crutches that blind and lame would have that made them unclean. Not sure. We do know that any blemish, according to the law, made one impure before the Lord in the Mosaic system. Listen, beloved, that system was typological. In other words, it was pointing to something other than itself. It was there to teach. In this case, it didn't mean that the lame and the blind were actually inherently impure or unclean. It just used such blemishes and defects to point to the real uncleanness. Sin. Actually, blindness and lameness were the product of the fall, are they not? And so they helped us to understand what fallenness looks like. But think of it this way, an unblemished lamb was required for sacrifices. Why? 
because they pointed to the requirement of the law of perfect sinlessness. That's what the law required. Obey and live, disobey and what? Die. That's what was necessary. Perfection, which no one had. And so the lame and the blind were kept out, symbolic of that reality, but not so with Jesus. Don't miss this. Here's what Jesus is doing. He is showing here the real purpose of His coming. The real purpose of the temple. That we come to Him with our blemishes. That actually, we all have that uncleanness and the impurity that the blind and lame symbolized. In that state, we come and He heals and He purifies And He makes us now worthy and clean to be in the temple that is the presence of God. You see, He came for those with blemishes, with sin, with impurity, with sickness. Remember what He said, I didn't come for the righteous, but the unrighteous. Only the sick need a physician. Jesus is showing the very purpose of the temple to make a way divine for our sins to be washed away, away for us broken, fallen, rebellious people to be made whole, to be cleansed, to be brought back into deep relationship with the living God. And only Jesus can do this. And He does it for free for anyone who comes. Gentiles were kept away the lame, the blind, and others kept away. But for those who have been with us as we've been studying the letter to the Ephesians, you know this already. Here we see in Christ's earthly ministry, Jesus came to bring them all close. In fact, you may know this, but even all the Jews were kept out of the most holy place. Only one man once a year for a very short while, the high priest was allowed into the most holy place. But Jesus changed that all because He fulfilled it all. He is the most holy place. And you are all welcome to Him. Those who were once kept out, He heals and He brings in, even today. You see, Jesus came for the marginalized, the sick, the sinner. That's all of us. He doesn't demand that we clean ourselves up and then come to Him. He says, come to Me the way you are and I will clean you up. And He doesn't leave us in our sin. He cleanses. He changes us. He does the work to bring us into the very presence of the Father. He is the temple. He is the high priest. And He is the unblemished Lamb who was slain so that anyone who puts his or her trust in Him will not have to be slain. But you know what's interesting, beloved? Some people hate this about Jesus. They hate it with all their hearts. Look at verses 15-17. through Here's our third point. Jesus confronts unbelief. He confronts unbelief. The response to Jesus by the Jewish leaders was this. Stop this. Stop the children. Stop them from calling you the Messiah. 
Look at verse 15. They saw the wonderful things Jesus did. That's their, what, what the, the author tells us. They saw the miracles, right? They saw what Jesus had done. They saw that He healed the lame. He healed the blind. They saw it with their own eyes. It did not matter. They heard the children crying out and acknowledging, Hosanna to the Son of David. It made them angry. Instead of being amazed that the blind and lame were healed, that those who had been broken for so long are now made whole and are now rejoicing instead of doing what shepherds are supposed to do, they could not tolerate one thought that people are believing in and following Jesus. The more people believe in Him, the less control and power these religious leaders will have over them. They are so controlled, beloved, by their desire for power and autonomy and authority that they don't even blink at the miracles they've just seen. They don't deny the miracles, not even for a second. They just hate them. Because, beloved, it's not a matter of the mind. It's not a matter of our knowledge or intelligence. It is a matter of our hearts. And so they reject Him. They demand that He stop the children. They want the children to stop telling the truth. They want reality muted. Because it doesn't fit their narrative nor their pleasure. Verse 16, look what they say. Do you hear what these are saying? In other words, stop them. And how does Jesus respond? Well, He has a rebuke of His own. He says, yes, I hear what they are saying. And not only that, but have you never read? These are the religious leaders. They're, they're certainly ones who should have read the Scriptures. And Jesus quotes Psalm 8, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, God's Word makes this clear. Even the little children can tell that I am the Messiah. How much more should you leaders of Israel know and admit this, but you refuse? Even children can see. Why do they refuse? Because admitting that Jesus is Messiah meant relinquishing their claims to authority. Relinquishing their personal power and prestige and autonomy. Relinquishing and submitting. Admitting they too have a need for a Savior. They couldn't see, beloved, that losing their lives for Christ's sake would mean gaining it all. And so they tried to save their own lives and way of life, and they lost it all. Jesus came into Jerusalem that day. He came to bring peace by heading to the cross. It's the only way peace could be made with a holy God. The temple points to the cross. He wanted them to see. The temple was meant to point to the work Jesus was going to do. It was a system set in place that helped to teach what was necessary. The blood of the perfect Lamb. But we know, beloved, that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs does not and cannot actually pay for human sin. It was pointing to the One who would come. The God-man. Sent to be our covenant head. 
to do what Adam failed to do. He both paid for our sins and earned for us life. And the time of that temple, both its corruption and its true purpose, had come to an end because the true temple was now here. The place where God and man, the only place where God and man could meet. Jesus the Christ. By healing the blind and the lame, He reminds us of all of our brokenness and need for healing. If you are here this morning, beloved, And you're beginning to wonder how it is that you can stand before a holy God with your sins and your brokenness. If you are here becoming more and more now aware that you need to draw close to the living God, but you don't know how, please know this. Jesus says, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, And I will give you rest. He doesn't say do this and the other and go through this hoop and jump through the other. It's about what He has done that He's giving to you. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the healer, the redeemer, the Savior. And if you turn to Him, He will give you rest for your weary soul. For those who remain in unbelief, I want you to ask yourselves why. What is really offending you about Jesus? Could it be that like the religious leaders of His time, you can't bear the thought of giving up control? That you want to be the authority in your own life and just refuse to submit even to God and admit that you need And I ask you to ask yourself another question. Do you really have control or authority? And by holding on to this mirage, where will it lead? God is who He says that He is. And there is only one way to draw near to Him. Jesus came for this very reason. That was the King's focus. To make a way to save you and me. Turn to Him today. That's my hope. Would you bow with me? Lord, we thank You that You have done this glorious work. We thank You that as You entered in to Jerusalem as King, You are not a King who stays silent but a King who does all the work that is necessary to save and rescue His people. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for many, not just here in this sanctuary, but all across the world. As Your Gospel is being proclaimed, Lord, may Your Gospel pierce hearts and open eyes that many may come to see this glorious King for who He really is. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.